Sorry. Hello, welcome everybody. Thank you for coming to the LSE and to the Forum for European Philosophy to today's um, debate on cosmopolitanism. Now, um, probably if I ask how many of you think of themselves as being cosmopolitan, uh, quite a few maybe raise it. So who thinks of themselves? No, hold on! I was going to do that! No, I haven't! Anyway, I think cosmopolitanism is probably a term that each of us sort of associates something with, right? And especially being in a city like London, which often people talk of, talk as a, as a particularly cosmopolitan city, right? The question, the question though, is what do we actually mean when we talk about that and think about that? And um, in the announcement to today's debate, we've sort of pointed out that the term can actually refer to um, a variety of different things. It can refer to sort of cultural background or lifestyle, or it can refer to more political notions or um, notions, of, notions about morality, right? So there's lot of, lots of things to sort of talk about um, in, in that context and coming to grips with that sort of notion. And so it's my uh, very great pleasure to have two extremely qualified people to talk to us um, about this topic here tonight. So um, with us are Laura Valentina, who is a lecturer in political philosophy at UCL, and um, her work is situated in contemporary liberal political philosophy. She focuses on international normative theory um, and, amongst other things, the relationship between justice and democracy. And she has recently published a book, which is called Justice in the Globalized World, with Oxford University Press. Um, and so if if your interest is sparked by tonight's debate, I recommend that you buy the book to read up on all the all the details of the positions that she's going to defend here. She's also published a lot of articles on international justice, human rights, ideal, ideal versus non-ideal theory, and other things. And her partner in the debate is uh, Leah Ippi, who is a lecturer in political theory at the LSE, and also an adjunct professor in philosophy at the Research School of Social Sciences at the Australian National University. And uh, her research interests are in normative political theory, including democratic theory, theories of justice, issues of migration and territorial rights, enlightenment political thought, Marxism and critical theory, and nationalism in the, in the intellectual history of the Balkans. And she also has recently published a book, also with Oxford University Press, and the title of the book is Global Justice and Avant-Garde Political Agency. Um, so two great books, I think, to buy after <laughs> And uh, with that, yeah, Christmas presents. Um, and so I won't be actually saying much more tonight. Um, our two speakers have, uh, have, I think, prepared each a, a little um, presentation to introduce you some of the terms of the debate and then they'll sort of debate a bit amongst each other and then we'll open up the discussion um, to questions and contributions from you. So I look forward to that and we hand over to you guys. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm going to start off with one thing that oh, I... Oh, sorry, one more thing. If you want to tweet, sorry, sorry. If you want to tweet along, we have an LSE uh, Twitter hashtag and the Twitter hashtag is LSE Cosmopolitan. If any of you must sort of send out tweets now or later. Okay, thanks. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to start off with a bit of an introduction, and one thing that I should probably mention right from the beginning is that as Lara and I started to talk about this topic, we realized that our views were actually quite similar, so I'm not quite sure how much of a disagreement we're going to have, but maybe you're going to disagree with us, and so that's how we're going to get the debate off the ground. So, uh, 
to this discussion, the debate on global justice, and then zoom in on the two main positions within this debate. One of them is cosmopolitanism, the main topic of uh, today's session, and the other one is statism. Then, against this background, Lair and myself will state what our specific positions are. Um, first, Lair, Lea will take over, she'll explain what her view is. I'll then take over and explain what my view is. And then we'll engage, hopefully, in a discussion amongst ourselves and with you. Okay, so background, the debate on global justice. And for some of you, this might be familiar. For some of you, this might be a little bit less familiar, but still hopefully useful uh, to contextualize our discussion. So, a couple of facts, uh, most, and most of you, I guess, are familiar with them. First of all, globalization. It's something that we hear pretty much on a regular basis as a term, and here I understand it really broadly as the increased interconnectedness between people and states across the globe. Economic, cultural, political, uh, there's many studies on globalization, but I take it that when I say globalization, you have a rough idea of the kinds of processes that I have in mind. And secondly, other fact that uh, most of us are familiar with are the stark inequalities between the world's wealthy and the world's poor. You can read tons of statistics here. I'm just uh, putting up a few quotations. For example, almost half of the world, over 3 billion people, live on less than $2.50 uh, a day. According to UNICEF, uh, 22,000 children die each day due to poverty. Some 1.1 billion people in developing countries have inadequate access to water, and 2.6 billion lack basic sanitation. The specific facts are not what I'm interested in drawing your attention to. What really matters is the extent of these uh, wealth and opportunity inequalities across the globe. And faced with this um, shrinking distance that globalization seems to suggest, and these stark inequalities, some have started to wonder about whether such steep inequalities may be described as unjust. So is this distributive status quo an injustice? Can, can, can we say that there's something unjust about this? And in order to understand uh, what this question exactly implies, we need to look a little bit more carefully into the very notion of justice. So, before we can know what it means for something to be unjust, we need to know what justice is. And again, this is a term that probably most of you um, are familiar with in the sense that you have a pre-theoretical intuitive sense of what justice is, but let's try to get a perhaps more technical definition of it. So what is justice? Justice is a special type of moral concern, we might say. When we talk about justice, we immediately evoke moral ideals. When we say something is unjust, we say there's something wrong with it. And specifically, principles of justice, when we invoke considerations of justice, establish persons' rights, their entitlements to certain objects. If you say that something is unjust, you are implicitly saying that it involves a rights violation, that someone has their entitlements violated. And specifically, to understand what a right is, um, an agent has a particular right to a certain object when other agents have duties to either provide the first agent with the object of that right or to refrain from undermining the agent's enjoyment of that particular object of the right. And I know that this might sound quite abstract, but we can offer concrete examples of this. So, for instance, let's assume that I have a right to life. I hope you agree that I have a right to life. Um, 
what does this entail? Well, this entails that other agents, um, hopefully everyone in this room, has a duty not to undermine my enjoyment of my life. Um, so everyone in this room has a duty not to stab me or not to do things that would clearly lead to me losing my life. Uh, similarly, we can talk about rights to certain material resources. So if I say that I have a right to food, typically this means that if I possess food that is necessary to satisfy this right, uh, food, then uh, other people have a duty not to steal this food from me, not to undermine my enjoyment of the object of this right. And similarly, a right to food can be correlative to positive duties, that is, duties on the part of others to provide me with the object of the right. So when we're talking about questions of justice, we're talking about entitlements uh, to particular goods and to rights kind of structures. So if there is an injustice, certain rights are violated. Uh, my access to certain goods that I'm entitled to is prevented. So relative to the first slide that I've showed, if those inequalities are unjust, then it means that people are not having their entitlement respected. Now, it might be useful to contrast justice as a special type of moral concern with a different type of source of duties, and that's charity. So, justice, I said, establishes entitlements to resources broadly construed. Charity, on the other hand, establishes duties to help the needy, when this is not to cost it to yourself, using resources that are rightfully our own. And typically, these duties are not correlative to rights. So... If I have a duty of charity to help someone, the other person is not entitled to my charity. They don't have a right against me. But still, I should use my own resources. So I've got the entitlement. But the morally right thing to do is to use my own resources to help them out. And just to give you a quick, concrete example, and still, both justice and charity are a measure of duty. So... Say that I'm contractually obligated to give you the money for a good I've rightfully bought from you. I don't know, an antique carpet or you know, whichever good you can think of. Now, given this type of transaction, you have an entitlement to the money. You have given me something and you have a right that I give you, whatever the fair price is for that particular type of good. And if I hold on to the money that I owe you, then I'm doing something unjust and violating your entitlements. You have an entitlement to that money. Typical case of justice. On the other hand, assume a situation in which entitlements are justly distributed, and yet there are some who are somehow badly off, whose basic needs are not fully met. And you could help them without too much cost to yourself. Then, under those conditions, you might still have a duty to duty towards them, but it would not be a duty of justice, it would be a duty of charity, a matter of using your own resources to help others in need. Those resources are not resources to which they're entitled in the first place. I hope this rough distinction makes some sense. Okay, within political philosophy, which is uh, the broad discipline uh, in which Lear and I work, questions of justice about the correct distribution of entitlements, remember, have been mostly asked within the domestic spheres. So typically principles of justice are thought to apply within societies, in the domestic arena, within states. And these principles, again, remember my earlier definition of justice, determine what citizens 
the members of these societies, are entitled to against each other via their state. And in much mainstream contemporary political philosophy, the content of principles of justice within the state uh, corresponds to equal liberties, equal opportunities for citizens, democratic participation, and perhaps certain welfare provisions, <coughs> depending on the particular account of justice that one endorses. So people disagree about the specific details of what citizens are entitled to against their governments, but equal liberties, equal opportunities, and some degree of democratic participation seem to be at least widely shared within Western democratic countries as demands of justice. And if states respect and protect these rights, these entitlements that citizens have vis-à-vis -vis each other and via their states, then these states or societies are just. If they do not, they say they're unjust. So if a state doesn't give its citizens equal opportunities, then I guess many of us would think, look, that state is unjust. Citizens have an entitlement to these equal opportunities, but in fact, uh, the entitlement is not respected, and so on and so forth. <coughs> now, this is just a broad overview of what talk of justice is about, but remember that at the very beginning of the presentation, I started off with the question as to whether global inequalities of a certain kind were to be described as unjust, as a, as a matter of justice. And this brings us back now to that initial thought, because in recent years, political philosophers, people like me and Leah, I guess, have started to worry or wonder about whether judgments of justice that were typically applied almost exclusively to the domestic arena could also be made in relation to the global arena. So whether we can not only ask whether the state or society is just or unjust, but whether we can ask whether the global arena is just or unjust, whether that's, some, the, whether that's a question that makes sense, whether concerns of justice apply at that level. And secondly, once, you know, if we answer this question in the affirmative, yes, it makes sense to think of the global arena as just or unjust, then there's a question as to what kinds of substantive principles should we employ to evaluate the justice or injustice of the global arena. So, at the domestic level, I mentioned equal liberties, equality of opportunities, entitlements to democratic participation, are exactly the same principles that we think define what justice demands domestically, the ones that define what justice demands globally. And these kinds of questions are the ones that uh, keep participants in the debate on global justice <coughs> occupied. And this is the debate within which the position called cosmopolitanism is located. And now, uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit more about this debate, zooming in on cosmopolitanism and statism. Um, specifically, we can identify at least three different and mutually conflicting views about the nature of global justice that give different answers to the questions that I've just um, projected on the slide. So, can we talk about global justice to begin with? And if so, what standards apply to the global arena? And these may be... Uh, described as follows, cosmopolitanism, statism, and nationalism. Um, I'm not going to say anything about the specific differences between these two. Uh, some of you uh, will think that this is uh, way too superficial, but just in the interest of time, I won't. And then hybrid views. Okay, so cosmopolitanism versus statism. The term cosmopolitanism, uh, deriving from Greek, cosmos politis, or citizen of the world, that's the type of idea that is being evolved is used to refer to a variety of different ideas, and this is something that uh, Christine anticipated in the introduction to the debate. 
So there are at least three possible understandings of the term cosmopolitanism which should be distinguished. Moral cosmopolitanism, institutional cosmopolitanism, and cultural cosmopolitanism. And you find slightly different definitions of these uh, in the relevant literature, but here I'm just going to try to give you a rough characterization of them. So to begin with, moral cosmopolitanism. The moral cosmopolitan is the theorist who believes that principles of justice that are typically egalitarian in form, so that says that... Uh, each of the agents should have a roughly equal amount of whatever the relevant good it is, uh, has an entitlement to a roughly equal amount, uh, should apply globally. So the moral cosmopolitan defends global egalitarian justice. Inequalities in the access to important goods at the global level constitute an injustice from the perspective of the moral cosmopolitan. So if you go back to the question that I raised in the first slide, well, the moral cosmopolitan answers to that question is yes. Are these inequalities problematic from the point of view of justice? Yes, they're problematic from the point of view of justice. That's what the moral cosmopolitan, as we define it for the purposes uh, of this discussion, says. Secondly, there's so-called political or institutional cosmopolitanism. And this doesn't look at the application of moral principle, which is what the moral cosmopolitan is interested in, but it looks at the types of institutions that we think should govern the global arena. An institutional or political cosmopolitanism is a view that there should be significant, substantial, supranational authorities. That there should be authoritative, partly sovereign structure, structures above states. In fact, perhaps the most extreme, the most stark political cosmopolitan position defends the world state. So that's what a fully political cosmopolitan would want to defend. And then finally, we might um, look at a third position, which is what we might call cultural cosmopolitanism. And this is the, for some people, descriptive, for other people, normative thesis, that the world is becoming, or perhaps it's desirable, it should become less culturally divided, and that individuals should draw, or actually de facto draw, on many different cultures in their outlooks on life. So when you hear people say, oh, you lead a very cosmopolitan life, uh, someone who you know, was born in a country and then lived for a while in a different country, um, eats sushi, but they're not from Japan, and um, so on and so forth. So we're looking at this uh, intertwining of different cultural influences. And this is also a sense of cosmopolitanism that um, you might have encountered in everyday talk. Now, for the purposes of the debate, we're going to be focusing on cosmopolitanism from a moral point of view and from an institutional point of view, and set aside cultural cosmopolitanism. But of course, we can go back to it if you think that there's interesting issues to raise in relation to it in the Q&A session. Okay, I've given you a rough sketch of what cosmopolitanism is. Now I'm going to give you a rough sketch of what statism is, and then uh, Leah will take over and state what her position in relation to this debate is. Okay. As usual, the term statism or nationalism refers to a variety of views on international morality, in the same way in which cosmopolitans refer to a variety of views. But these views are brought together by a rejection of global egalitarian justice, which, remember, is what cosmopolitans endorse at the level of principle, and a rejection of an institutional world vision within which states devolve authority upwards to supranational institutions even more so in the case of a world state. The state is, um, or nationalist, is not happy with, with that kind of picture. 
And so, uh, slightly more precisely stated, we might distinguish between moral and institutional statism. So the moral statist um, is the theorist who thinks that egalitarian justice, as I said, does not apply globally. And typically, the moral statist believes that international morality is grounded on two main pillars, has two main features. First of all, it involves respect for the sovereignty of internally legitimate, internally well-ordered enough states. So we should respect the sovereignty of internally well-organized states. We should not attack them. We should not force them to adopt certain policies rather than others. And sufficientarian assistance, and I'm going to explain what, explain what that means in a moment, between different states. So if one particular society at the le falls below a certain threshold of su sufficiency, so their citizens don't have their basic needs met, there's absolute deprivation, so to speak, within that society. The state says, if other societies are in a position to help, and this is not too costly to them, then they have a duty to do so. Whether this is a matter of justice, entitlement, or a matter of charity, remember, just helping the needy using one's own resources, is something that statists disagree on. But I'm not going to get into the details of that. Just keep in mind, from the statist point of view, at the global level, we don't care about equality, we care about sufficiency, and there's no general redistributive principle, but we should respect uh, the sovereignty of states. So statists answer no to our initial questions. For statists, the Absolute deprivation that characterizes some people in the world is morally problematic and might count as a matter of justice, but the inequalities themselves don't. And remember, the question was about the inequalities. And then institutional or political statism, for this uh, is probably um, quite intuitive, uh, involves the denial that there should be significant supranational authorities. Uh, for the statist, states should retain their full sovereignty, uh, and at most, at the international level, there should be treaty-based international organizations, but no supranational authority. In some, here are the two positions, two um, contrasting views that um, are present within the debate on global justice. Cosmopolitanism, from a moral point of view, uh, argues for global egalitarian justice. From an institutional point of view, argues for the establishment of supranational authorities um, you know, in the extreme, even a world state. Statism, from a moral point of view, it doesn't argue for global equality, but for global sufficiency, and for respecting the sovereignty of internally well-developed, um, well-ordered communities, and institutionalism, uh, sorry, from an institutional point of view, statist argues that states should retain their full sovereignty. So now is when I want to ask the question that uh, Christina raised at the very beginning, but here you've got more choices than the choices that she wanted to give you. <laughs> So let's take a poll. And how many of you, this is just pre-theoretical intuitions. There isn't a right answer. And in fact, there's people in the literature who offer very eloquent defenses of all of these positions. So you can't get it wrong in a way. It's just for Leia and me to get a sense of what the distribution of preferences in the audience is. So uh, who of you ha has a kind of global egalitarian moral cosmopolitan intuition? Okay. Pretty much everyone. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, slightly more controversial. Uh, who is an institutional cosmopolitan? So, who thinks that we should bring about supranational authorities, uh, in some cases, even a world state? Although, if you put up your hand, you, you won't be committed to the world state. We'll, we'll leave it open. <laughs> um, okay. 
cosmopolitan and more popular than institutional cosmopolitanism. Now we'll look at the relationship between these various things and see whether you can uh, consistently hold on to your moral cosmopolitanism without being an institutional cosmopolitan, for instance. Now, statists. Who thinks that equality shouldn't really matter at the global level, but sufficiency matters? So statists are not evil, by the way, so they don't have morally <laughs> repugnant views. Uh, actually, if the world was organized along statist lines, um, it would be a lot better than what it is now. So just to... Um, so who... Um, it, he's of a sort of slight statist disposition. I've seen, what, two hands? Oh, okay, I'll a little bit more. Uh, a minority. Uh, so cosmopolitanism is fashionable. Okay. And then finally, who is an institutional statist? And here I need to see more hands, because otherwise you're not... Abstentions are not allowed. Who is an institutional statist? A lot of people didn't raise their hands on institutional cosmopolitanism. Maybe you have a third view. Okay, a few people... Cosmopolitanism is more popular. I think that this is the conclusion that we can raise. And some people maybe are, are just abstaining. Okay. Now, problem is, and, and, and here is um, when Leah and I will state our own position, we couldn't really position ourselves in either of these two slightly extreme camps. Maybe we're a sort of a part of the third wave. I don't know whether you would call it that. But there's an industry of writings of global justice that has recently come out that tries to stake a kind of middle course or a middle position between these two extremes. And um, our views, which uh, we've termed here hybrid views, which doesn't sound great, but uh, it's just to give you a sense of how they position themselves in relation to um, these two extremes, are the ones that we're now going to propose to you. So, Leah takes so over. Okay, good. So, yeah, maybe we should have called the debate on hybrid cosmopolitanism. Um, yeah, so, I'm just going to say in a few words how I understand this hybrid cosmopolitanism to work. And uh, I want to make a distinction between principles and agents. This is how I, at least how I start interpreting the debate. Basically, principles tell you what you ought to do. And when you ask questions of agency, you're asking what is the modality through which we can get to realize these principles or to implement them. And the way in which my view is hybrid um, is revealed in how I am cosmopolitan on principles, but statist on agency. Although, as you probably realize in the Q&A, and maybe a little bit when I start talking about agency, I've slightly changed my mind from when I wrote the book, and I think I'm becoming more and more extreme and less and more less hybrid on cosmopolitan. So, so when I started out, I started out being committed to statism on agency, and now as I've thought more about these issues, I'm becoming I'm more tempted to be more cosmopolitan all the way down, basically. So. So let's see where we go. Uh, so as I said, it's a view that is egalitarian, endorsing egalitarianism and saying when we ask the question, are global inequalities justified, I would say no. And is that a question of justice? I would say yes. So global inequalities are unjust. That's what I want to, uh, that's the view I want to defend if I relate back to Laura's sketch. And then the second one is, uh, what is the modality through which we can get global inequality going? And so what are the agents through which global justice can be realized? And that's the way in which the view is statist. I want to say that states provide the most persuasive way of understanding agency in the world that we currently have. And as I say in the book, I was not committed to the idea whether states were just transitionally helpful or instrumentally helpful in realizing egalitarian justice or whether a world of states is also what we should stop at. So it's also the end point. 
And I think it would probably become clearer in the debate that I'm now, after having written the book and unfortunately also published it, um, <laughs> more inclined to say that there's no reason to... This view at least doesn't commit you to holding on to a world of states as the end point as well. So it could well be that your state is on agency transitionally, but there's nothing wrong with the world state, so just don't be scared of the world state. You raise up your hand and go for it if you feel like it. Uh, at least there's no objections of principle. So, uh, so how do I defend global egalitarianism on matters of principle? Well, I start out by saying that uh, when we're doing normative theory, the way we think about principles should somehow be related to the circumstances, the empirical circumstances in which the inequalities that we are concerned by operate. So there should be some kind of relation between the empirical causes of, let's say, poverty, which is what's bothering us in the first instance, and the kinds of principles that we want to elaborate. So uh, what I want to say is that there is a very important relation that normative theorists need to take into account between the diagnosis of why these inequalities or poverty are bothering us. And the reason I'm ambiguous when I say inequality or poverty is because it seems that statists, as Laura was saying, are more bothered by poverty, sort of absolute poverty, and uh, cosmopolitans are also concerned by inequality. So I'm saying that there isn't an answer to that question that doesn't have to face a prior question of what is the relation between the empirical diagnosis of the circumstances that we are facing and the principles that we ought to think about. So that's the first point. The second point is that um, if it turns out that global absolute deprivation is causally related to relative deprivation, in other words, if empirically it turns out that global inequality is a cause of global poverty, you can't consistently be committed to defending uh, global poverty and remedies to global poverty without also endorsing uh, global equality. So what I'm saying is that if you're a statist and your view of global justice is restricted to defending the need to remedy absolute deprivation, in other words, to remedy global sufficiency, then if it turns out that empirically global sufficiency is related to global inequality, then you can't reject global inequality consistently. So you have to also endorse global inequality. And so you have to be concerned by global inequality and you have to endorse global egalitarian principles. What I do in the book is I talk about the importance of particular goods that are distributed globally in the global sphere, which I call positional goods, that are goods the absolute value of which can't be determined without considering how they are distributed. So I say, in the domestic context, we're familiar with positional goods. For example, um, education is a positional good. We don't know how much a master's degree is worth if we don't know how many other people have a master's degree. So we can't really establish that. And what I say, it may be that if in the global sphere there are positional goods such that we can't know what the absolute value of that good is without considering the relative the distribution of that good, and if it turns out that these goods are empirically significant in, um, when we analyze global poverty, then we can't reject global inequality. So we can't reject, we can't say, oh, we're not concerned, we don't think global inequality is a principle of justice, we're just committed to charity, right? So what I'm saying is, if you're a statist and you're sufficientarian, but it turns out the sufficiency is causally linked to inequality, then you can't reject inequality. That's how I am egalitarian in principles, Right? That takes care of principles and it's sort of summary view and we can explore it more um, in the Q&A, but hopefully it's clear enough for you to just be able to engage with it. 
The second one is agency. So I'm saying I'm, I'm a cosmopolitan egalitarian on principles, but I'm statist on agency. And then the question is, why do, I, why do I think the state is the best instrument? Well, Laura already talked about the importance of coercion in understanding justice. Justice is something that needs to be coerced. There needs to be an authority that is able to allocate obligations in a coercively enforceable manner. And what I'm saying is, the state is actually the only coercive authority we really know. International institutions are um, treaty-based. There is some option of exit. In more empirical cases, exit may be costly, but as it happens, there is a very clear distinction between authorities that can exercise coercion, such as the state, and other authorities that don't exercise coercion. So what I'm saying is, that means that there is something special about the state. The state is able to place coercible, enforceable obligations on its citizens. And what I say is, well, that's good news if you're a cosmopolitan, because what it means is that you can force your fellow citizens to endorse this view of global justice that you think is the most appropriate one, right? So uh, what it means is that if you're committed to the principles and you think the principles have purchase, then you need an agent that is able to allocate these principles such that a regulative principle of sort of more general moral demand can become a principle of justice and can become coercively enforced. And the reason I insist on the relevance of states is that, as I say, states are able to place coercively enforceable obligations over their citizens. The second thing is it doesn't, it's not enough to have uh, coercive obligations among citizens. What Rousseau, you know, the old problem, people also have to love their laws. You know, they don't have to just obey with the laws. They have to have some way of identifying motivationally with them. So there's a sort of problem of stability. And what I say is that we can then go again with the sort of nationalist status literature, which highlights the importance of processes of identification with one's country and with the way in which that country runs things, and say that that's also good news for cosmopolitanism, because what it means is that cosmopolitanism can become part of civic education in particular states, and so can also become motivationally sustainable. So first it's coercively enforced, enforced, but then hopefully it becomes part of these long-term processes of um, emotional, cultural identification. It becomes part of settled practices. And so then cosmopolitanism is also more motivationally sustainable. So there's these two ways in which the state is very important. Firstly, it is able to enforce obligations. Secondly, state-mediated practices have the support of citizens because of their shared historical, cultural past and so on. What have you? You're all familiar with a sort of nationalist story, nationalist state story about this. Now you might say, well, what's the incentive? Why should states do this? Why should the state try to turn itself into a cosmopolitan entity? How is it going to happen? And this is where uh, I defend this idea of um, a cosmopolitan avant-garde. And what is a cosmopolitan avant-garde? Well, it's basically the people amongst you who raise their hands saying, yeah, we support moral cosmopolitanism. We'd like to see it realized. Cosmopolitan avant-garde are basically all these agents who act within a state to transform it into a cosmopolitan direction. It can be theorists like Laura and I, although our impact will probably be quite limited, and uh, yeah, we're probably a bit silly to think that it's much higher than just talking to a room about these things. It can be politicians, it can be social movements, so it's, the view is quite open. It basically speaks to those agents that are able to see that it's important not to limit the demands of justice to equality within the domestic sphere, but that there's also something really important about demanding global egalitarian justice writ large, and there's something very important about transforming the state in a cosmopolitan direction. Um, so, to sum up, going back to the moral institutional distinction that Laura was highlighting, from a moral perspective, going back to moral cosmopolitanism, my view rejects uh, global sufficientarianism. 
But it is conditional on this empirical link between absolute and relative deprivation continuing to hold. So if the nature of interactions in the world changes such that what we have is actually a kind of closed commercial state of the kind of fish that talked about in the 19th century, late 18th century, um, then, then the relationship between absolute and relative deprivation causally wouldn't hold anymore, and so then maybe the global sufficiency would be perfectly appropriate standard. So it's kind of empirically, it's contingent on these empirical conditions applying. And the second one is, as I say, endorsement of global equality as a principle of justice. When it comes to institutional cosmopolitanism, there's emphasis on states as agents of global justice, but as I said, the relevance, uh, the emphasis is on the transformative role of states as agents of global justice. So there is nothing to preclude that states can actually transform themselves in such a way as to um, wither away, right? So if the role of, if the cosmopolitan avant-garde takes seriously their role in sort of transforming the state, then the state could also wither away. This view doesn't preclude that, although, as I said in the book, it's not made very clear. So there is, uh, so the view is not necessarily going and um, endorsing moderate cosmopolitanism. It could go with also more demanding forms of cosmopolitanism. Okay, so now Laura will give you the second hybrid view. Yeah, and mine is not a crypto-hybrid view. I'm really hybrid, whatever that means. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, okay, so I... Actually, hold on a sec. Um, I've, w when I first came to the debate on global justice... Um, I was, and at the time, there weren't that many hybrid views on the market, I guess. It was mainly cosmopolitanism and statism. And I just thought, oh, but it seems obvious that the right position should be in the middle. I don't know whether that's just a general disposition that I have about pretty much any kind of dispute. But that's what I thought. And my, uh, my task was then to try and find a coherent way of defending a position that is in the middle and doesn't just take different bits for the other positions in an ad hoc manner. And whether I've succeeded at that or not, it's for you to judge, but this is what I'm trying to present right now. So I start off from a principle that is probably shared by pretty much everyone within this literature, and I, Leah, would you agree with this broad characterization? Some, some idea of respect for persons who are autonomous agents. And what I mean by autonomous agents is fairly basic. So we need to respect persons as agents with a capacity to form a view of what a good life is and a capacity to instantiate the view in their own life. So we think that people should have a certain sphere of freedom, let's call it this way, within which they should be allowed to pursue their ends and goals without being continuously interfered with by others. This is what respecting people's autonomous agency means. And I think that this basic principle gives rise to the two main areas of morality that I've illustrated at the beginning of the presentation, that is duties of justice and duties of charity. So I think that we can explain both of these duties as ways of oper operationalizing the principle of equal respect for persons who are autonomous agents. And this is because although they're both concerned with respecting autonomy, they're concerned with respecting autonomy in different ways. So I suggest that justice limits the ways in which we may legitimately constrain other people's autonomy from a social external action point of view. So when we think about people's autonomy, we can imagine that they, this has both internal conditions for a person to be autonomous. They have to have certain basic mental abilities, for example. But autonomy also has important social conditions. 
So if people are continuously interfered with, if they don't have access to resources, they won't be able to translate their accounts of the goods and their plans of life into action. And because resources are scarce, we somehow limit each other's autonomy all the time. Just by you know, being in society, by having property rights on certain things, we prevent other people from doing things that they could do if we weren't around. And so justice limits the ways in which we may legitimately constrain one another's autonomy. It gives us certain rights, and these rights delimit the spheres of agency within which we can pursue our conceptions of the good. Charity, on the other hand, demands that against a background of justice, we help the needy uh, when this is not too costly to ourselves. And to give you an intuitive example of um, how this distinction might work, Take uh, a scenario that um, those of you who are familiar with political philosophy probably have heard a gazillion times. So the uh, scenario in which there is someone drowning in a shallow pond. And there's someone, I, I see a smile, and there's someone uh, standing by. Now, it seems to me that there's a fundamental difference between, and we assume that it's not too difficult for the bystander to pull the child out of the pond. It seems to me that there's a significant difference between the type of moral duties that an agent who has nothing to do with the predicament of the poor person who is about to drown, to drown has vis-a-vis -vis that person, just a bystander happens to pass by. I think they have a duty to help him out, but I don't think it's a duty of justice. I don't think that that person has a specific entitlement, the person who is drowning. On the other hand, if the bystander is actually someone who has pushed the person into the pond, in the first place, then it seems that the duty of the bystander is more stringent and that the person who is there drowning in the pond has a right, a specific right, against the bystander. Why? Because the bystander has placed limits, constraints on the poor person drowning's autonomy by pushing him into the lake that are not justified on grounds of justice. So the, the, the intuitive idea be behind this distinction, which kind of uh, complex-sounding terminology such as autonomy is this, is trying to capture the different stringency of different types of duties in this kind of scenario. And given that I said that the function of justice is to place limits on the way in which we may legitimately constrain other people's autonomy, talk of justice presupposes the possibility or the actual constraining of other people's autonomy. When this is not there, when this possibility or the actual constraining is not there, then questions of justice don't arise in the first place because I said justice as a particular function. And the way in which I talk about instances in which some people constrains other people's autonomy uh, is through the notion of coercion. So we have to have coercive relationships in order to be able to talk about justice. And specifically, I distinguish between two types of coercion, interactional coercion and systemic coercion. So interactional coercion is coercion that involves an agent, can be an individual agent like a person, or a group agent, for instance, a state. Um, we often talk about states or firms, uh, complex collectives as agents in their own right. Interactionally coerces another agent when he or she acts in a way that places non-trivial constraints on their autonomy. And so the case of uh, the person pushing another person into a pond would be a clear case of interactional coercion on this account. I know it's a very broad understanding of coercion, but we can talk about this more in the Q&A session. 
But you can have similar types of interactionally coercive dynamics between states, for example. You can have a state invading another. You can have a state pressuring another state into adopting certain types of policies. So this is one type of coercion, and it involves agents, uh, be they individuals or group agents. Other type of coercion is what I call systemic coercion. And this is a, a kind of a more strange type of phenomena in the sense that it involves coercion that doesn't happen directly agent to agent, but via a system of rules. So a system of rules is systemically coercive when it places non-trivial constraints on some agent's autonomy. And we can think of, uh, there are many examples in the world in which there are systems of rules that clearly places constraints on our ability to lead our lives in accordance with our conceptions of the good. So you can think of the practice of slavery, for example, that basically is a system of rules about uh, ownership relationships between different individuals, what can be done with them, and so on and so forth, which clearly places constraints on a number of agents' autonomy the slaves to begin with. And this is the kind of system that triggers the need for justice-based assessment and, I mean, in the case of slavery, the system is unjust. Similarly, a state can be seen as systemically coercive of its citizens because of the set, set of rules that it implements. However, if a state conforms to principles of justice, although it's a subject of justice-based assessment, we can reach the conclusion that it is actually just. All I'm suggesting is that these types of dynamics, interactional or systemic coercions, are the sort of things that we try to assess when we think about justice. We can only raise questions of justice when there is either interactional coercion or systemic coercion in place, or both. And the market, for instance, is another set of rules and common patterns of interactions which can be described as systemically coercive. Clearly, the market places quite a lot of constraints on what we may legitimately do. And then, if that's the case, we can then move on to the question, is it just or is it unjust? Are these constraints just or unjust? Which is what I've just said. Okay, to conclude... Uh, what does this imply? What does this distinction between systemic and interactional coercion imply for the debate on global justice? Well, I think that it shows that um, principles of global justice have to be of two types, given the existing nature of coercion at the global level. So I think at the global level, there's both quite a bit of interactional coercion, especially between states, but also quite a bit of systemic coercion. And what I have in mind specifically um, is... Glo global finance and global markets. So these are system of rules that place constraints on um, agents' ability to lead their lives in accordance with their own conceptions of the good. So on the one hand, we need principles that allow us to justify interstate interactional coercion. And here, my principles are very close to the status principle, so respect for the sovereign equality of internally just or legitimate states. But then we also need principles that justify uh, global systemic coercion, for instance, by regulating global finance and, and trade and eliminating sis, uh, problematic power inequalities between the agents that engage in this, because otherwise the distribution of these spheres of autonomy under these regulations would not be compatible with equal respect for persons. So to conclude, back to the moral institutional distinction and why I would classify myself as a hybrid of some sort. So uh, from a moral point of view, I think that global justice requires respect for the sovereignty of legitimate states. In addition to this, charity-based assistance. So I agree with the status, at least at the level of charity, that if we have independent political communities, 
no coercive relationships between them. But for whatever reason, one falls below a certain threshold of sufficiency, then others that may be in a position to help at reasonable cost have a duty of charity to do so. But that duty would not be a matter of justice. It wouldn't be a matter of entitlement. And on top of this, siding a little bit more with the cosmopolitan, I argue for the regulation of global finance and trade and more generally of global systemically coercive dynamics uh, aimed at reducing power inequalities between the agents involved. And from an institutional point of view, uh, I defend issue-specific supranational authorities that are specifically aimed at um, placing constraints on what I called uh, global systemic coercion. So if you want to further regulate markets, if you want to further regulate finance, then we'll need some supranational authorities that somehow do the job of regulation and make the systemic coercion compatible with equal respect for persons. So I'm arguing for something like moderate cosmopolitanism and then completely agnostic, I guess, about the desirability or feasibility of a world state. And, ah, ooh, sorry, I forgot something. Uh, then, <laughs> Leah and I were thinking of possibly suggesting questions for discussion, but I can also leave it at that. What should I do? Okay, yeah, okay, they, they come up with the questions. <laughs> Trust the audience. Trust the audience. I don't know. Yeah, so, well, thanks, first of all, for the, um, for the great presentation of your views. Um, so, yeah, we have a little more than half an hour for discussion, so you're welcome to, to raise any questions or concerns that you might have. Yeah, Are you okay with me? Just yeah, sure. Um, uh, I think I was pointing here, but it doesn't matter. Whoever. <laughs> um, I just, I was just wondering whether the uh, sort of status versus cosmopolitan uh, dichotomy is equivalent to the sort of real dichotomy between states and subnational governments. And if there is an equivalence there, uh, is there anything more to learn from real experience, real history of local governments? and national governments in terms of this debate. <coughs> you mean they don't work? <laughs> or? <laughs> well, I mean, I might say, uh, for example, you might look at how the federal government emerged in the United States, for example, is that similar to how a, a supranational government might emerge between states? So this is a question about... Um, institutional statism and cosmopolitanism. So the idea is that we could think of states uh, in the world today as kind of local government units within states vis-a-vis -vis a possible supranational authority that would be functionally similar to something like a central federal government in the case of domestic states. Is that the kind of analogy that you were suggesting, or did I get it wrong? Yeah, I think so, but there might also be some... Uh, you know, aspects of mo the moral aspects underpinning that as well. I don't know. I mean, in terms of the... I just try and give it a go and then see what my fellow hybrid cosmopolitan thinks. Um, I guess the suggestion, I think, is an interesting one. So whether, at least from my perspective, at least from the institutional point of view. So when we try to think about what would be the best way of organizing the global arena such that we would attain global justice, whatever this requires. And we've seen that there's quite a bit of debate about what the substantive principles are. And in a way, in order to guide our imagination and perhaps not engage in completely utopian thinking, we need to look at proxies 
for you know, what might happen at that level. And I guess the development of you know, the relationship between local government and, uh, or sort of federal state government and, and then the central federal government within states might be a way of doing that. I mean, one of the problems with that is, of course, that the scale is very different at the global level. So how much... Uh, how many lessons, uh, robust lessons, you can draw from this more kind of local circumscribed kind of case to then apply to the global realm is, you know, it's something that I think my more political science colleagues would look at me with, with some degree of skepticism. But, I mean, there are cases, for instance, I don't know, democracy in India. India is a deeply internally diverse society, and yet it still, still seems to be working as a democracy, so you might think, for those who are skeptical about something like a global democratic government, you can say, look, there's a lot of dif- diversity within India, okay, there's a l- but still democracy works, so maybe we could have something like a global democratic government too, th- the fact of diversity doesn't prevent us from, um, you know, that doesn't conclusively show that something like a global democratic government is impossible. So I think that the kind of suggestions that you offer are good ones, um, it's just that we need to be very careful about um, the generalizations that we make from specific cases, I, I would say, if you want to. Yeah, I mean, maybe just a sentence. I think for me, what the analogy shows is that you actually, at least reading federal regimes, how they emerge, etc., what one understands is the importance of central authority even within a federal regime, right? So if you were to run with the analogy, what you would have to infer mm-hmm. from that is that even though you might have a sort of federalism of states, you would still then need some kind of central authority, to really make sense of this, um, so so yeah, so I think the analogy is instruction is sorry is instructive, both in its success and in its failure stories, and so it's, it shows I think both the limits and the advantages of talking about that kind of system institutionally. Okay, well, well good, good to you then. Thanks. Um, so what I thought was very interesting here was that neither of you were sort of rushing to immediately dismiss the world state, which. Well, like view from cosmopolitanism as a wider literature, theorists are very keen to say that point one, by the way, I'm not talking about politics, don't get it wrong. Even people like cosmopolitan Democrats, it seems to me, are more or less explicitly advocating a world state, but then really want to say they're definitely not doing that. Um, so do you see, do you feel like there's some sort of wider shift towards kind of cosmopolitanism being more susceptible to coercive global authority, global sovereignty, or um, is it just you two who see the light? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's a wider shift. I can tell you, I think the, the thing with the world state is that it's very plausible in theory. My only, I, I just can't think of any theoretical objections to it. But then my worry is, I think, where do you run away when you have to run away from the world state? Right? So if, you have to claim for, if you have to claim for political asylum, what do you do? And that's a, a sort of fundamental worry. Right? So it's all well and good. And, and I think this is why people, you know, normally theorists who are engaged in abstract argument construction can't see any problem with it. But then, you know, if things were to go wrong somehow, you know, my avant-garde turned nasty or whatever, something else happened, there's an environmental catastrophe, conditions of scarcity are such that we actually, we lose any uh, drive to beneficence, we become, become so selfish, it seems that the kind of motives on which cosmopolitanism relies are altruistic motives, and were that to disappear, and on top of that you have a world government authority, what do you do? It's a bit scary, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I get, can I add a little thing? It also, I mean, what you say is right, and I think it's still true that the vast majority of cosmopolitans would not 
uh, embrace the world state precisely for the worries that Leah raised. But there's also a question as to what exactly we understand when we talk about the world state. Um, so there may be more or less powerful versions of the world state with greater or lesser checks and balances going on. So there might be ways of uh, constructing a vision of the world state, and I haven't come up with any sort of uh, nice blueprint for the uh, policy people to implement on this, but there may be ways of doing the institutional design that somehow make the world state look less scary than it could be. But I would also share Leah's practical um, hesitations about, you know, the world state as such, and I'm kind of agnostic about it, its overall desirability. Since that topic of world state just brought <laughs> <laughs> right now. Um, let's go to the back. Yeah. Yeah, I think for my hand, I forgot to, you know, as to whether I'm a statist, because I think it depends on whether the state is democratic, so mm -hmm. it has legitimacy, you know, and you mentioned the same thing. That involves an informed electorate, you know, giving uh, uh, it legitimacy. More so than any ideas about uh, global uh, uh, world governments, because they're not, they don't have that legitimacy, not so far. They're not sort of democratically elected by, by, the, by the citizens and so on. Uh, and so I, I, I think at the moment, <laughs> what, what we've got in terms of the legitimacy um, of the state is. is is important for our rights and our benefits and, and so on and so forth until we come to some future <laughs> with us away. It's different. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. This is why I would say that it's important that if there were a process in a cosmopolitan direction, it would be very important for this process to come from the state rather than be imposed on citizens of particular states from sort of supranational institutions on which they have no input, right? So that's, I think that's compatible. The other thing to say is that in this global justice debate is premised on the assumption that everything's fine with a domestic state. And in a way, we know that that's not the case. But I think the guiding assumption of the literature is that, of course, the domestic state needs to be egalitarian, needs to be democratic, needs to be representative, and so on. And then we are concerned with whatever um, failures of legitimacy or provision of sufficientarian or egalitarian needs is absent at the global level, right? But, but everything said is conditional upon things actually working with the state first. Can I add a tiny thing to this? So I'm also very much in agreement with, uh, with the suggestion that you've just given. But I think there's an interesting twist. So we might value states because, in a way, they allow us to participate. They have, they have certain mechanisms of accountability, democratic legitimacy, and so on that you pointed out that are crucial to respect our own rights. However, in an increasingly globalized world in which there are these systemic dynamics going on, uh, the fate of states, to a certain extent at least, seems to be determined by things and decisions that are taken outside the state itself. So things like tax competition between different countries, or the, the very fact that the decisions, for instance, that the United States might take in terms of its um, economic policies or foreign policy and so on, have the very deep impact onto what is going on within other states. And so, to some extent, it seems that in order fully to honor the idea of democratic control that seemed to underpin the, the type of suggestion that you were giving, perhaps we need at least certain issue-specific supranational authorities that take care of these externalities that are going on between the policies of different states and the fact that states cannot really have 
full control of what's going on within their borders because they keep affecting each other in a variety of different ways. So I think even starting from the premise that you wanted to push about democratic control, there might be an argument for limited supranational authority, not a sort of something like a global state. I was wondering what you just said, and, and that relates what you, what you said. That, that relates somehow to the to the discussion we have currently about the states of Britain and in the EU. <laughs> it's kind of like there's always people sort of saying, "Well, why are we part of the EU? We should leave the EU because you know why should we be subject to these to these laws? And you know why should we just determine our own sort of laws and, and so on?" But at the same time, it seems that maybe based on what you just said. Given that we're already influenced See, by so the sort of common market, etc., um, so you have these other people who say, if we leave the EU, then we'll we'll lessen our influence even even more, and we'll still be subject to what's going on at that level, but we won't have any democratic influence in how it how it happens. Would you? Yeah, I think that it it's it's the kind of framework that could be applied to the case of the EU as well. And one thing is that. Until fairly recently, I guess, cosmopolitans or global democrats were quite happy to look at the EU because it seemed like a success story. And then things started to change. And then and now it's a case that can be invoked both sort of to support uh, more supranational sovereignty-type arrangements, but also that can be invoked to show, look, they don't really work very well. So I guess, you know, we have to wait and see. Uh, things were very depressing from the point of view of the normative theorists. But yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny. I thought it was really funny that the majority of people in here would be uh, sort of cosmopolitan uh, in, in, in two ways. Because of course, the normal how you would expect that. I mean, it's the LSE after all. Uh, but it's 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 also <laughs> because when when people do go back to their home countries, that would be developing countries, sort of mid-income countries, or indeed sort of other European countries or whatever all of a sudden they very often become quite nationalistic again because, of course, within that local context, identity plays a different role. So I wonder to what extent, and of course in the UK context, I mean, we just had this poll, 56% of, 56 of uh, uh, sort of citizens in the UK would actually want to leave the EU. Mm -hmm. Of course, that's not reflected in this room. Uh, um, and of course, you know, if you've got devolution with Scotland, you've got it in both directions. So I just wonder to what extent both of these, statism and cosmopolitanism, are totally contextual and really to what extent it makes at all sense to kind of ask these kinds of generalized questions. I mean, if, because in a very different setting, the very same people would probably come out just in the opposite kind of way. So maybe have a view on that. Well, I mean, I agree with you that abstract principles are always interpreted contextually, but that's not an argument for saying that we don't need abstract principles at all, right? Because after all, you need something to interpret to start with. So, you know, when you say... For example, something which I completely agree with, you know, I'm, I come from Albania and I tend to be quite nationalist and I was actually thinking today, I'm going to put the Albanian flag on my Facebook page because it's going to be a hundred year of Albanian independence in a few days and I was very proud of it. But uh, what, what is nationalism? I mean, nationalism as a process responds to cosmopolitanism, even historically, right? So you have both things going together. And so even to understand, I think, these cultural reinterpretations and framings of these universalist projects, you still need some account of the universalist project in the first instance, and you still need people who talk about that. There is a core who 
engages in this discussion, and then you have these contextual environments that interpret and reaffirm the principles and also change them to some extent and thereby contribute and culturally enrich what it means in the first place to have this debate. So I will agree with you partly, but so I would agree with the first part of your intervention, and I would say that doesn't show that you then don't need this discussion at all. I would say, yeah, but the discussion then is still useful because there is something on which... No, it's um, so I didn't mean to say it's not useful. All I was meant to say, it's not a sort of... Uh, it's not really indicative of what people in here really think because they think one thing in here and they say, think another thing you know, when they go back home. Right. Whatever. So it's, it's not an absolute kind of measure sure. of, you know... Yeah, and I don't think... And, and yeah, I think my reaction would be, yes, you're right, and it's not even meant to be indicative, right? It's meant to be inspired and inspire in turn. It's an exchange, so... Can I add a something? So, three... Small points. One is, I guess, there's a different. One could read what you are suggesting about what people think as a sign that people are just not being very consistent in their thinking. So there's one could say there's a difference between what people actually think and what they should be thinking. So if you're cosmopolitan here, they should also be cosmopolitan there. One one could one could have that response. But there's, I mean, two, two possible further things that one could say. One is that. Uh, there is a problem, I think, with cosmopolitanism in general in relation to the cosmopolitan motivation, so to speak. Um, it's, it's interesting how a lot of people who call themselves cosmopolitans, then if you look at their day-to-day actions, so to speak, they don't look very cosmopolitan at all. And I think that what you were suggesting might uh, sort of go, be in line with, with, this, uh, with this fact. And there is a little bit of work that is being done on the extent to which cosmopolitanism as a position about global justice and about the duties that we have is plausible or sustainable given that it seems to stretch the limits of human psychology so much. We just don't feel the sort of sense of obligation that we feel towards our near and dear, so to speak, towards a completely unknown person who lives on the other side of the planet. So I think that your suggestion might point to something, um, to something important within the debate. But it was what we were saying, and here I'm joining Leah, was not meant to be a description of what was going on in the room. Perhaps, you know, if people have put up their hands being cosmopolitans, and then, you know, they go back home and they start being very nationalistic and uh, sort of embracing principles that are completely different, then they maybe need to ask themselves, are these two stances consistent? Can I, you know, do, what, do I make sense to myself, so to speak, holding both one and the other? And if that's not the case, then maybe there's a push to revise one's own view and deciding, well, maybe they're hybrid cosmopolitans like us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, yeah, in the structure, if you have any um, one. a question for each of you, if that's okay. Um, for um, Leah, you said at the outset that you used to become more cosmopolitan. But you haven't said anything since then that indicates why, and I'm particularly interested uh, how that might be given the comments that you have made since then about the role of the states as agents and so on. Um, for Laura, I, when you set things up at the beginning um, with the distinction between justice and charity, yeah. um, and, and then you, you implied that that was in a domestic context and then went on to talk about it in a global context. And my, my question then was, if, if, if what you said about justice, that it's about entitlements, particularly entitlements around um, uh, the egalitarian treatment, particularly with respect to global distributive justice, mm-hmm. if all of those assumptions are correct, 
doesn't cosmopolitanism rule out charity, particularly with respect yep. to um, global distributive justice? Yeah. And then, if that is the case in your theory, it raises a question about the role that charity plays in your theory and the way you outlined it was that you, you, charity seemed to be linked to the interactional versus the yeah. systemic accounts of coercion. But it seems to me that, at the, with respect to global distributive justice, the interactional account of coercion doesn't really come into play at all. I mean, maybe it comes mm -hmm. into play with respect to things like um, global criminal justice, yeah. private yeah. crime justice, but even a lot of those are linked to global distributive justice. Um, so it's just a little bit interesting as to, you know, if you could elaborate on that a little more. Whoever, shall I just add? Yeah, sure. So yeah, so why did I change my views on the state? Well, basically, I think I always thought of the state as a project. And then I realized, well, this, it's, you know, it's a historically contingent, empirically contingent project. And what matters to me is the instrumental role that state-based political relations play in realizing particular principles of cosmopolitan justice, right? So if the state is a project, there's nothing wrong with saying the state might be a project that is... Um, directed to dissolving the state historically, right? So, um, so there was nothing that, in my argument, had any actually intrinsic defense of the state. And I, was, I remember when I started my dissertation, my previous came out with my PhD dissertation, my advisor always told me, why are you, you keep saying you know, you're in favor of the world of states, but why do you keep saying that? I kept saying, no, 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 I really want to hang on to the world of states, and I really want to be against the world state. And then I realized it was just my initial infantile desire to go against my supervisor every time you made a plausible objection, right? So, so yeah, so, but there is really... My, my defense of the state is purely instrumental, and it's, the state is important transitionally. It's important because of the role that the avant-garde can play within the state, given certain coercive political relations and so on. And so there's nothing to prevent the complete transformation of the state in something else that we don't know yet because of the historically contingent nature of that project. So we can't really foresee exactly what it will turn into. Okay, so thanks for the question. Uh, excellent question. So there's a, there were two questions in the question. One was a general question. So... And um, what if, given how dis I've described cosmopolitanism generally, it looks like if you're a cosmopolitan, then charity drops out of the picture because everyone is sort of at an equal level and so nobody would be even below the needs threshold. And that depends on the type of cosmopolitan that you are. Um, on many accounts of cosmopolitanism, for instance, if a particular society is in a situation of need through its own fault, so to speak, because if certain individuals are in a situation of need and they can be regarded as responsible for that situation of need, then justice itself would not require compensation, but there may be uh, demand of compensation on grounds of charity. So it depends on the type of cosmopolitanism, if that makes sense. Now, the more specific question about my type of cosmopolitanism. So, And you are right that... It is true that the debate on global justice, especially on the cosmopolitan side, but also a bit on the status side, as focused primarily on the question of distribution. And what I try to offer is a more general account of justice at the global level. And you spotted it rightly when you said, you know, there's the interactional uh, dimension and the systemic dimension, and the systemic seems to be the one that has to do mostly with distribution, while the interactional may have to do more with criminal justice, aggression, just war theory, for example. That is true, and it's kind of glossed over um, those um, specific features just uh, in the interest of time. But one thing that I wanted to mention was that even on my picture, for example, if actually on, on my picture, if 
you have a society, you have a just background from a systemic point of view, and you have a society that either due to a natural catastrophe, say, falls below a certain threshold of sufficiency, or through its own um, reckless economic policies, then in those circumstances, I think duties of charity would kick in, but not duties of justice. So I still think there would be a space for charity. But if we were to live in a just world, I think on most of these accounts, the, sp- the room for charity would be much t- tinier, so to speak, be much smaller than uh, it is in the world today when there is so much injustice. <laughs> Yeah, so good question. So it would be, uh, I think, a bit insane to deny that state borders are, in fact, coercive. Uh, and I've, I've not looked at the question, and you can, inter- I think this is interesting because it actually um, places emphasis on the interaction between systemic and interactional coercion because state borders are partly um, constitutive of state agency, one could say, in, in some way or other. But on the other hand, if you look at the system of borders, you can also consider it from the perspective of systemic coercion. In the work that I've done so far, I haven't looked at um, the question of systemic coercion relative to the state border system. And I guess there's two, way, two things one could say about this, but this is just brainstorming. One possibility that is, I guess is open to me is to say, if you have a just background, so if from a sort of financial uh, market point of view, the background is just, then the moral urgency of somehow imposing global regulation of freedom of movement somehow lowers because everyone's position will be good enough within their own states. And so it might be that that particular issue is not such a live one, so to speak, for a theory such as mine. But the other possibility is to say, in that maybe in ideal theory, but the other thing one might say is in non-ideal theory, given that we don't yet have a just background, so to speak, we will also need to bring about some supranational authorities that regulate migration between different societies, given that you know, whether you're born in one society rather than another makes a huge difference to your life prospects. But it's a very nice question. I think it puts pressure on the um, systemic interactional dimension, uh, given that you can look at borders from both perspectives. And this is just a bit of brainstorming about how it would go about it. Thanks. Um, so I wanted to say something to the state of view, because um, the way you set it up, I can relate to my hand. The way you set it up, I thought cosmopolitanism was a lot better. Um, <laughs> it didn't mean to be biased. Yeah. <laughs> I know. So um, the idea I have in mind is that um, what's relevant isn't so much the state, but that societies are internal systems of social cooperation. And so um, the idea is something like this. Um, if you and I together plant a garden and grow some vegetables, then we have a claim on those, and the claim is presumably rooted in our having produced them together. And we can set aside questions mm-hmm. about the original property rates in the land, yeah, yeah, yeah. all that kind of stuff. 
and, and the division of labor and how we would distribute it amongst ourselves. But the point is we have a claim, right? And it's a claim that people who didn't help produce those goods don't have. And if there's a starving person standing outside our garden, right, now she might have a very strong claim on some of what we made, and it might be a claim of justice, um, and it might even defeat some of our claims and so on and so forth. But the point is that we have a claim on that stuff even if we're not starving, right? So mm -hmm. we have a different kind of claim on those goods. Yes. So it seems like what motivates the status view, or one way to motivate it, yeah. is to say, we start from the idea that people within one system of social cooperation have certain kind of claims on what they produce. And then you can claim that people outside of that system of cooperation have claims as well, but it's, well, so there's two things. And these can be strong, they can be the, this sort of sufficientarian claims of justice that status count is. Or you might even say, well, this just leads to cosmopolitanism because the current institutions that are in place globally count as sufficient to make it the case that we're all really in one system of social cooperation anyway, and so you can motivate your cosmopolitanism that way. But, it's, but that kind of cosmopolitanism still sort of acknowledges the idea that there might be claims of justice on goods, because we're talking about sort of distributive justice here, that are different, have a different moral ground. Can I start? So I think there's like two different challenges. One could, so first one is the sort of standard cosmopolitan one, which is even granting that there is property rights over things, which is controversial. Why assume that this system of cooperation premised on boundaries and having this authority called the state is the relevant system of cooperation to focus on when there could be alternative systems of cooperation that allow us to establish and assert property rights? So that's the sort of standard cosmopolitan challenge. My own one would be slightly different. So I would say, forget about that. Say that's not a relevant challenge. Say the state really is the right system of cooperation. Go back to your example. Suppose that in order to plant your vegetables, you get water from a collective water hole. So the person who is standing outside of the garden, even though they're not contributing to plant the vegetables, they are actually somehow entitled to the common water hole. So you, what you're doing with your production is actually affecting others and affecting some, some, some kind of um, common entitlement to a common good. That would be a different kind of challenge, which would say that the, uh, the example is premised on a false empirical assumption, which is autarky. There is this individual here, and then there is society here that is uh, establishing property rights collectively, and they've got nothing to do together. I would say that empirical um, assumption can be challenged, and it seems that globalization is all about challenging that empirical example. So if you do challenge that, then you'd come up with some more hybrid way, I guess, of uh, figuring out the claims of these two agents. Yeah, and I think, just again, my usual footnote, um, the, um, I think what you pointed at is a distinction that exists in the literature between uh, cosmopolitans that are sometimes called relational cosmopolitans. So they uh, acknowledge that there is something special about people being part of a joint system of cooperation or standing in certain kinds of relationship between one another, but as uh, Leah mentioned, they're now suggesting, look, that kind of relevant system of cooperation is now globalized. But then there are also the other types of cosmopolitans, sometimes called non-relational, who just think it doesn't really matter whether there is or there isn't uh, this uh, global structure of cooperation. What matters is that fundamentally unjust, whether some, when some people are worse off, uh, deprived, doing badly, through no fault of their own. So even if you know, there's no system of cooperation, but some people in one country are very badly off just because they were born in that country and it's not their fault, then that's, that in itself is an injustice. And so this, 
there's two ways of motivating the cosmopolitan project. And some cosmopolitans, as you say, do acknowledge the initial force of some of the status intuitions, but they just think that empirically speaking, those lead to a cosmopolitan view. So, yeah, good point. I have a question for Leah regarding responsibility. If you say that global inequalities are unjust and at the same time say that the states are the agents to sort of undo that justice, um, are those states then individually responsible for all citizens of the world? Or would you promote some kind of a second-order responsibility where the state is responsible first for its citizens and then for all others. So I would say if the empirical story is correct about the relationship between absolute deprivation and relative deprivation, then the state may be responsible for some non-citizens more than it is responsible for some citizens. So let's say citizens in the state that are rich have a lot of options, can exit the state wherever they want, could be citizens of any other state. It may be that the state has less responsibility towards those citizens than other citizens that it's affecting by virtue of some um, intervention. Right? So I would say, prima facie, it sounds plausible to say that there could be a degree a distribution of responsibilities in degrees, right? So states are primarily responsible for their citizens because they affect mostly their citizens. I think empirically, though, that is controversial. I think states generally affect more poor citizens than they affect rich citizens. Rich citizens of rich states have lots of options. They don't I don't think states are necessarily so embedded in their um, actions and interventions, right? So I think if you complicate the story a little bit more, you could see it both ways. And I think Laura's views on you know, the difference between systemic and interactional co coercion is actually really relevant for really unpacking that way of the way in which the state might be embedded in um, intervening on other agents' lives that are not necessarily its own citizens. So, yes, sir. Yeah. Do you, do you want to add something to that? Okay. Yeah. Oh, what do you think Emmanuel Kant's view on cosmopolitan? He worked on the piece. And I think he had views on this. Have you any ideas about Kant Bellows to the subject? <laughs> any ideas of what Kant would say about the subject? Yeah, I mean, I think he would... Uh, well, he would also be worried about where people go if they have to leave the world state. But other than that, I think he would agree with us. Yeah. He wrote on a pectoral piece, actually. Yeah, yeah, which he thought was the piece of the graveyard. Yeah, yeah, and that was the same... Yeah, yeah, yeah. description of a graveyard. Yes. But, uh, yeah... Okay. So I think we have time for one last question. Yeah. Um, in, in the world of sport, uh, you have a lot of supranational authorities, some of them quite well established, <laughs> and some su surprising, probably unexpected um, outcomes. Is that there you've looked at it all? Do you have any lessons from there? You mean from FIFA or? Yes. Yeah. Is it supranational because it's uh, because its members are it's not? The global they, for its yeah. Right. So, would, well, I guess it depends on what you make of it. Do you think it works, or...? Well, one of the difficulties is that there's a one-member, one-vote system right. in many cases. So the Cayman Island vote counts as much as And another, another problem um, is that they're not really accountable to anyone else because we're going to on the vote. Right. Well, maybe if we had... I mean, I, no, no, I have not looked at... This case, and I, again, I mean, I don't know how generalizable any uh, lessons that we learn from uh, soccer world government would, um, or sports world government could extend. Um, and I've forgotten what I wanted to say. Uh, <laughs> however...
Leah, you, you go you go on and then hopefully the point will come back to me. No, seriously. All I have to say is that I think football is actually a really good analogy for a lot of things in life. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's a guided by. So it okay, no, may well be that back. there are lessons to be learned from FIFA, both, both positive and negative. Well, one of the things, so I think you said that they have nobody they can be accountable to. Then I want, I mean, one, one possible way, I don't know whether it would work, of uh, responding to that worry, I mean, I guess... Neither of us probably would want a centralized world state with no checks and balances, so to speak. Or maybe some, or maybe you would want one. But you know, it's having a variety of different authorities that could somehow be competent only for certain specific areas, such that you don't have too much power, is what one would ideally want. I don't know whether anything like that could be reproduced in the case of um, sports government. I don't know whether the sort of the, 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 the football authority could be partly accountable to the tennis authority. I mean, I have no idea. But that kind of structure would be uh, probably less problematic, given you know the, the issue that you raised of um, you know, this is a supreme government and no constraints. But yeah, I, I, I would worry about the generalizability of. Uh, Okay, great. So with that, I think we're out of time, but I think you've given us lots of food for thought, and, and you have as well a few questions. So thanks to um, Leah and Laura, and, and to you as well.